Amen. As I was uh, listening to Olivia's beautiful singing and playing, I was reminded that uh, when she came into this world, she had a tough time. She had a hard time. She spent a lot of time in the hospital. And um, God had a plan for her life. And what we see now is a surrendered heart, just as you sang about this morning. What a blessing it is to see God's plan unfold in your life. Well, we uh, hope you brought your wallets um, this morning because we're talking about giving. And the good thing is we already took up the offering, so you know, I, I, we're not going to send it around again. <clears throat> but I hope that we find as we look into this series, and I want to preach four sermons on these two chapters of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, because really it's a whole there are there are distinct topics, and I'm trying to draw those out, but it's a whole worldview of giving. It's a whole new way of looking at time and resources and what God gives us. And really it ties into the overall theme of reconciling the world through Christ to God, because God would have us not just use our mouths and our words to, to, to preach the gospel, but everything at our disposal can be used to build his kingdom, can be used to serve as a resource to reconcile the world to God. Even our dollar bills, even our whatever possessions that we have. So it's a whole uh, a way of encompassing how we think about what we own, how we work, what we do with our paychecks and so forth. And I hope all of that comes out as we look at this chapter over the next several or these chapters over the next several weeks. Giving is a grace of God. It's just a grace. That's how Scripture looks at it. And I know that sometimes we, we, uh, it's hard for us to have that view. It's hard to let go of things, especially if we've worked uh, hard for them. And part of the curse is by the sweat of the brow that you will gain things. So money's hard to come by a lot of times. But we are to have a a biblical view of what all of that means and how it ties together. So these chapters play a a very uh, important role in our Christian walk. And what we're going to find this morning is that our attitude towards giving actually plays an important role in, in displaying if we are even Christians or not. I mean, that's how... Deeply rooted a heart of giving giving and a heart of generosity is. You will see that it serves as one of many proofs that we have surrendered our hearts to Christ. So if we if we have never given anything to anybody to meet a need, then we we either have an emaciated form of Christianity or perhaps we're not Christians at all. Because when Christ comes into our lives and begins to do his work to conform us to the image of Christ, you find in Scripture that God is incredibly generous at his own expense. And so there will be lots of opportunities in our lives as his disciples, his children, to be very, very generous. So... Paul, as mentioned last week, he highlights the generosity of the Macedonians. 
And they didn't just give according to their means, but they gave beyond their means. And he is using their giving as an example and as a motivation and encouragement for the Corinthian church to also muster up before God their resources and make an offering to meet a need of the churches. So today we're going to examine primarily verses in chapter 8, 16 through 24, but I may, I may draw for some, from some other verses in chapters 8 and 9. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. By the way, I don't have an a, uh, ear mic or this morning. It's not working. There's another one on order so next week. So I'm not used to having to stay right here in front of this. So if you can't hear me, like give me some kind of signal to get back to, get back to the mic. Because it's been like many, many years since I have not had the luxury of that ear mic. So the Apostle Paul says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often trusted and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love. And of our boasting about you to these men. By the way, I should mention in the bulletin, it only mentions one point. Honorable management, but there's two points giving as proof. So I didn't want you to think that we were finished after the first point and start to leave. Because I'm just getting started with that. So honorable management of gifts, of giving. How are we to look at this? How are we to... Handle this. Well, it should come as no surprise based on what we have learned about the Apostle Paul's nature, his personality, the way he does his Christian life. He is very, very cautious. He is very, very cautious to not allow his words or his actions, his personal opinions, anything about him to become a hindrance between people hearing the truth of God and the gospel. So he is, he is always guarding himself against any kind of decision, comment um, that could be used against him that could be a potential bad reflection on the gospel and the truth. Now, we know that about him. I mean, he just goes way overboard in how he behaves and, and denies himself in incredible ways simply to pave the way for the gospel to come and plant seeds in people's hearts. 
So it should come at no surprise that he is also very cautious when it comes to asking for money for ministry purposes to meet needs and for the way that it's handled when it is given. So we see that what he has done here is he has, in essence, formed a team of honorable men to handle this gift and to make sure that it gets to the intended purpose. And he uses what I would consider as uh, several chapters of precious scripture volume, scripture space, to talk about how cautious and how careful he is in handling this gift. Whenever I read certain parts of scripture that are redundant, it always kind of tense up because scripture is so precious. Every word of God is so precious. I don't want to read the same thing twice. Tell me something new in this chapter. But God's providence, it's his book, it's his word. So he does these kind of things. And it's important for us to know whatever is in there, whether it's written once. So we have a description here of how Paul's thinking and how the church operates when it comes to managing gifts. And he wants to give some assurance, say, to the givers. That, look, when when you give according to your means and especially beyond your means, I want to give you some kind of confidence or insurance that we're going we're gonna to handle your money and your giving as responsible as possible. And this is a smart move, of course. It's a smart move for any entity that, that is dependent on charitable giving. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, and just because we have a good heart to give generously does not necessarily mean that the money that we just gave is being used for good purposes or that it even reaches the intended purpose at all. So in a fallen world, and as loving believers, we can't afford to be naive and part of being responsible with our funds and God's given resources means looking into these matters, uh, doing research if we have to, or at least assuring that, hmm, is, is this gift really being used for what, what I think it's being used? Is it going to reach its intended purposes? In our day and age, there are so many scams. I mean, people will quickly take advantage of a true need, whether it's a tornado somewhere, disaster somewhere, uh, the, the, the needs of Ukraine, even in our present day, there are always, for every charity or charitable organization out there that is legitimate, there's usually that many or more that are illegitimate. So it's, it's common sense, but it's also being responsible. And what we cannot do as believers is afford to be naive about these things. So it's an insurance, if you will. So first of all, here's, here's his team. We have Titus, trustworthy Titus, one of Paul's right-hand men who serves him very well. And he's not just a messenger. He's not just in this for the duty uh, sake. He also, the scripture says, he has this incredible passion for this church, the Corinthians, because God put it in his heart. Remember, we talked about how God can put things in people's heart. It's not meant for every other heart. 
Sometimes it's just meant for this heart or that heart. And so you have a passion or a zeal in one area that I may not have. God puts things in people's heart. And one of the things that he planted in Titus's heart was a zeal. He said, I just love you, Corinthian people. And yeah, Paul wants me to do this. But I want to do this of my own volition. Uh, they, they know Titus. They trust his heart. He's proven himself in that way. Then we have, secondly on this team, the, what we call the famous preacher. The famous preacher. He is so famous. And he is so well known throughout all the churches. I have no idea who he is. And I don't think you have an idea who he is. Not a good idea. And it kind of irks me, honestly, that he's so well known that everybody kind of... He, it's, my assumption is he doesn't even need an introduction. You just bring up the, the famous preacher and, and you automatically know who he's talking about. And I have no idea. So that, that's a little bit irksome. But who is it? All we know is that he is famous and he's famous for the right reasons. He's famous because he clearly preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you know, in our reality TV days, you can be famous for a lot of things. And a lot of times they're not one bit godly. But this guy is famous for preaching the gospel. Is it, is it Barnabas, Apollos, Sopater, Tychicus? I mean, who is this guy? These were all well-known, very capable men. But we just don't know which one he is. Is he some apostle? Well, the apostles, we you know, kind of come and gone at this time. And he gives us no hint. Like he doesn't say, you know, this famous preacher, the son of such and such. He doesn't bring in the genealogy. He doesn't tell us his eye color, his shape, his size. We have no idea, in other words, who he is. We just know that he is very, very well known. So another, it's another example of assurance. Look, when you give, I want you to know we have Titus on the job. You know him. He loves you. And we got this celebrity guy on the job who you all know. And he's also uh, been proven. So what we do know is that there has been, through the ages, individuals that have been exceptionally gifted in, in pronouncing, proclaiming, preaching God's truth. And so gifted, in fact, that they become well-known for it. And so you can look at history books, church history books, and you will find individuals in every generation, or in every century at least, who were just exceptionally gifted at studying the word and clearly proclaiming the word of God. And this was one of those people that he had that kind of reputation to communicate. I think of Augustine or Chrysostom, the church fathers, uh, Knox, Whitfield, a great revivalist preacher, uh, Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd Jones, if you've never heard him, he's written volumes of books. You can read his sermons. Uh, this day and age, um, he's no longer with us, but a, a name that is renowned within Christendom would be Billy Graham. Um, you could also think about, at least in our, in our conservative or reformed circles, uh, Spurt, um, John Piper. You know, he just, he's very gifted. 
and uh, for the right reasons. He's used his abilities for the right reasons. You could go from John Piper all the way up to uh, Corky Abernathy, Sam Moss. These guys are just, when they stand up here, well known. So God gifts people for the right reasons to propagate his truth. So you can see what Paul's doing here. He's mentioning these names. So if, if I, if, I mean, if we took up some large offering and I said, uh, well, actually, um, Lily's going to take the offering to the bank after the service, you know, the, the, the suitcase of cash, you might go, she doesn't even have her license. And, you know, is there going to be anybody responsible looking over this? Is, is Lily here this morning? Okay. Okay, good, good. She probably could do it, but I shouldn't have used somebody else, as a, somebody younger, as an example. But you see what he's doing here. He's setting up just like this. It's, it's a network. It's an assurance and a, sa- a safety network. And as if that wasn't enough, we are treated to who Paul calls another brother. You mean there's more trustworthy people? Well, there's this other brother. He doesn't mention who this person is. And, but what he says about him is he's tested. He's tested. He's not green. He's tested. We put him in, in, in situations. He's reliable. He's honest. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's going to get the job done. So the Apostle Paul is not necessarily on this network or this t- security team or armored car with godly character kind of team. But he has set up this network. Nobody's gullible. Nobody's green. They're all battle ready, if you will. So why is he doing this? In verse 20, we take this course. So it's purposeful. It's intentional. We take this course so that no one would blame us about the generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. He, he's establishing a network or process of giving that's reliable and honorable. And not just secretive, oh, you can trust me. Don't worry about it. You can trust me with your money. He's saying, no, look, I've got these people that you know well. So in the sight of God and in the sight of man, it's all on the up and up. It is all honorable. So God encourages generous giving. But I think in this passage, we also learn that it's God's heart that we would be responsible in how the gifts are dispersed and used. So it's not just the giving, but what happens after that is also an opportunity to worship God and be honorable to God. So generous giving requires honorable management, which would instill confidence in how the money is handled above reproach. You know, today... If you give to charity, um, and again, I would say you want to be you want to be educated on what you give to and the, and the the entities or the charities that you give to this day and age. And I remember it's been years now, but they came out with this uh, shocking statistic of a lot of the big fundraisers, the big um, charities that we can give, you know, meeting needs of children and 
and physical needs and, and impoverished needs and so forth, that there's only a certain percent when you, you're given your money because your heartstrings are pulled, there's only a certain percent that's actually reaching these individuals. So today, on um, some of the charitable givings, the uh, organizations, the average used that actually goes into the hands of the people is about 70%. So about 30% is for organization. I mean, you got to pay people. Uh, the telemarketers, you know, the ones that are really, really after you to give, they can make as much as 80%. So 20% of that goes. Now, these are professionals, and they, they pull in the dollars. They're good at what they do, and there's nothing wrong with fundraising. It's a necessary thing. There are true needs in this world that we need to know about and give and have opportunities. Nothing wrong with fundraising. But we just need to know if it, if it matters to us. I want to know that my money is going to a certain place. How much is it going into that place or how much is, is it paying for somebody's um, a wonderful professional fundraising ability? They're well paid. So the Apostle Paul uses this. It's a financial accountability. It's a part of God's um, economy from start to finish. You want honest people involved in this. We want to respect the giving. You know, if, if we have a team that's on there and two of them are reliable, but and he says, and another brother who's not been tested, we know nothing about him. As a matter of fact, he's been known to skim off the top. Well... I don't know that I want to give to that then. I'm not sure where my money's going to go. So it's financial accountability. Now, this is just, I think, a good time to mention if you've ever wondered, because we take up an offering, where's the money go? Well, I mean, we have some things in place here at this church where we try to honorably uh, honor the Lord with our funds. So you have the guys, and it's usually Butch, I think, in charge, or Tom, uh, who are in charge of it, and they get... Other servants and helpers, they take up the offer and pass the plate that goes in the back. And then there are two people present to count the funds there. This for its accountability. Then the money is put in our, uh, our safe. It's got three-foot thick steel walls, and it's 20 feet under the ground. They drop it down in there. Now I'm kidding about that part. It goes into a safe place, and then we have uh, what I would consider a incredibly honorable and godly treasure, Sandy Taylor. Uh, I, get, I have the privilege of working with her quite a bit, uh, feeling different things, and she is, I want you to know, she is very desirous to honor the Lord and how she handles. She doesn't take anything for granted. Anything, she it wants to be accountable with every cent, where it goes, what her actions are, decisions that need to be made, what account to put what in, and we have uh, John Wine helps with the financial committee. So there are things in place that, that you should know about that we really try to handle things, even as a small church, that are very limited in who can serve in areas that are only up and up. We don't uh, – um, Sandy always gives me all the reports that we look at. She gives them – she provides them to the elders. As a matter of fact, our finances are public – so at any time that you wanted to look at a report, yearly report or whatever, you have access to that. And it's really just to try to be accountable. Uh, we don't sign our own checks. If you have, if you're on the list at the bank, we don't, I don't sign my own paycheck. She doesn't sign hers. Michelle doesn't sign hers. So th there's just accountability in the network here, I think, which I hope it's, 
it served us well so far um, that honors the Lord in that way. The, the other thing about um, our giving and our finances, it's also good to mention, I think, that I do oversee this process. But I don't want to share something with you that you may not know. And that is that um, I have no idea what you tithe. And that, that may shock you. I know that it has shocked some people throughout the years. I do not look at tithe checks. Uh, I've had people come to me say, I guess, I guess you noticed that I'm, no tith- I'm not tithing anymore. And they, they, this has been years ago. And they were disgruntled about something and wanted me to know it and thought that I kept up with the tithing. And I guess you noticed I, I, I'm not tithing anymore. And I said, Actually, I haven't noticed. So if you want to get my attention or express a grievance, it's probably not a good way to do it because I, I don't have any idea. Now... There are different views on that. Uh, there are pastors that keep track of individuals tithing in order, they would say, to shepherd the flock. That's an important part of Christian living and Christian growing. And they want to know what, who's giving and what's not so they can encourage growth in that area. And I think that's legitimate. I don't have a problem with that at all. But for me personally, I just remember early on in my pastor, I decided I don't think I... I I don't see any good reason for me to know that um, personally. For one, I don't want the temptation of judging. I don't want the temptation of look at looking at one of your pay, one of your tithe checks or whatever, and just making a wrong assumption that wow, that's all that person gives. When you you could give generously to other entities that I don't know about. I just don't. I didn't even want to clutter my my mind and heart with that. And I, I like to think I'm kind of taking Paul's approach, and that is the apostles. You put the truth out there, you're accountable to God. And I'm trusting God to work in you. And that's, you know, we don't have these emergency fundraising meetings. We've never had one. We just trust that God's working in your heart. I'm, I'm trusting in you to be obedient. Look, we're a family. We're a small church. We all have to do our part. If you're not doing your part, I trust that God's going to bring conviction, maybe through these chapters here, about how are you handling your resources. But that's just how I have chosen um, to operate. So, you know, if somebody wanted help in their finances or, or tithing, I'd be glad to offer that if you've requested it. But I just want you to know that I don't know what you give um, for tithing. So... I hope that's uh, acceptable to you. The apostle and I kind of ran out of time last time, but you'll notice that he encourages the Corinthians to give, but he says, I do not command you. Did you notice that? He's, He's not saying, thus saith the Lord, you have to give this much. He's just giving the overall teaching of the importance and how it is a reflection of the character of God but he leaves the, the, the pennies and the dollars between God and the people. He doesn't make it a command. There's a big need, therefore, you've got to give based on your income. You've got to give 100 and you've got to give 50. And he doesn't get into the, He doesn't burden people's hearts or souls with that. So, honorable management. Here's where it gets a little trickier for our church. Not only do we receive gifts, we also give gifts. 
And we have a missions team, bless their hearts, that make hard decisions. Because we're a small church, we're limited, and there's so many needs out there. And th- this team pours and prays and, and meets and, and brainstorms. How can we use every penny and stretch it out to honor God? And we're so blessed to have a benevolence committee and a missions committee. And those are the kind of decisions they make. But see, they also, in order to manage our funds responsibly, they have to know where their money's going. Our money's going, right? They have to look into these organizations to make sure they're legitimate. There's been times where we have given to, say, people overseas, but also we stop hearing about their ministry or what's going on. And the communication starts to to break down a little bit, and we're no longer certain. We don't have boots on the ground there, so we're no longer really certain or assured that our funds are are legitimized, and so sometimes support will drop or just end. But this happens all the time. There's there's responsible giving and um, receiving on both ends. And when a decision has to be made about giving, um, whether it's local or overseas, you know, questions have to be asked and, and answered. For local things, it's not unusual for this missions committee to have to make the tough decisions because you might have a need that is brought across their desk of this person can't uh, pay their electric bill. This person in the community, well, they don't just, oh, well, that's terrible. We can't have people freezing to death and write a check. Well, who is this person? What are they characterized by? Because responsible giving is a real thing. Uh, If there's this constant need... What, well, what are you doing with the money you have? Are you you got a gambling problem? Do you have a drinking problem? Is there laziness involved? Am, am, am I giving to something that's actually not promoting responsibility? So it gets complicated, right? But that's called honorable management. And we're all responsible to do it. And it, it's also played out in this church in, in the sense of this ministry team and missions team that we have. I appreciate your prayers for our mission team. They make they make hard decisions, and we take they're often taken for granted. It's not just about praying; it's squeezing out our pennies. So, you tied to this church. This church tithes. Um, I want I, I want to say the last discretionary income tithing was so it's been over ten percent for a long time. It's, uh, it's it floats between ten and fifteen percent. It comes in here and goes fifteen. Now it's at 15. It comes in, it goes back out. There's just a lot of things, a lot of praying, a lot of dependency on the Lord, um, even within this small body that takes place. And I wanted you to know that. Jesus is honored. I think he's honored by this. He's honored by generous giving. He's honored by the management. And I want you to know that I, the leadership here trusts everybody to do their part. Now, you have to know as we look at these chapters, we all have a part. And, and I am trusting that you will get before the Lord and see what it is. There's a lot of kingdom activity that takes place amongst ourselves. And then the second point that's not in the bulletin is giving as proof. Now, talk about important. Now, look at these verses that the apostle uses to encourage people to meet ministerial needs. I'll go jump up to verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting. 
So Paul sees that the generous giving as a proof of a heart that loves others. Of course, that comes from what? A faith in God. It comes from loving God, which comes from a saving grace faith. Then in 8.5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So you see what comes first is a transformed heart. And when our hearts are transformed, we will behave in a certain way. I say this, verse 8, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. So you see it's some kind of proof taken on. Then 2 Corinthians 9.13, he, he lays it out. And, I, and as I said, I'm going to jump ahead, jump into different places. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. That comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So th- this action is a proof that I have confessed Christ as Lord. It's one of many evidences of a true conversion experience. So giving serves to show that we are true and how we handle our money. It's a mark of a true child of God. Hence, we have our sermon title, The Giving of or the Grace of Giving. So it's not commanded, but it is a fruit of proof. And it comes from our new nature. When that new nature comes in, we look at everything in a new light. It's an act of love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. So, of all things, money management has to do with an evidence of our salvation experience. And Jesus talks about this. You know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart. You can... Unfortunately, we're, we're kind of predictable with our human nature. And that is where you're investing your time and your resources is, it's, it's pretty obvious that's what's important to us. That's what is most important because I'm saying no to this and I'm saying no to this, but I'm saying yes to certain things. Now, why would I pursue them? Why would I make sacrifices for them? It's because that's what my heart wants. And so that comes into play here. Christians should use their money uh, to serve people, to, to show their love for people, love your neighbor as yourself, instead of using people to serve their love of money. And we see the opposite in our culture, our very, very rich, wealthy culture that we live in. We see just the opposite. We see money worshipped, quite frankly. The Macedonians experienced this new level of gracious joy because they gave beyond their means. How can you experience like this new level of joy in life when you've just given things that you didn't really have? I mean, it, it required sacrifice. If you think about this, it just shows where their heart was. Where was their heart? They loved God. They love God more than their resources. They wanted the joy of Christ. So if you think about what you serve and where your heart is, they they gave their money away and yet experienced joy. That reveals that their joy, the source of their joy in life, was coming from Christ. Now, if our if our joy 
as we are encouraged in our culture, is to come in our possessions. Look, if you, could, if you just made this much every year, if you had these possessions, you're set for life. That's what we're promised, right? You're set. No worries. You just need money. You need resources. It's the answer to all your problems. Okay? So then what happens when I lose it? Now, how many grumpy people do you see, grumpy Americans, because they're running out of cash? Because their source of joy in living was found in that. Then you have the Macedonians who kind of are low on cash now, and yet they couldn't be happier. Because they didn't lose their source of joy. The source of joy was Jesus Christ, and you never lose Christ when you have him. He's always there. So they're living for him. But what is our source of joy? What are we depending? Where's our comfort in? Does it come and go? So if it's Jesus Christ, it comes and it stays. It's always alive and well. And so when we live with this, this generous mindset, with our time and our resources, then it's just revealing what we truly live for. It's, it's a heart that loves Christ. If we're not using our time and resources to reconcile the world to God through Christ, where are they going? What is our greatest passion? So these resources are kingdom tools to glorify the Lord. One thing about a lot of Christian, especially conservative Christians these days, is we, we use the word counterculture, and we've got to be countercultural, right? Because our culture seems to be going in this direction, and we, the, God would take us in this direction. And to be countercultural can be a very powerful thing because it's basically saying no to the world and its ways. If you think about historically when the church was new, there were things about the culture that were just wrong according to Holy Scripture. And so Christians just took a stand. Uh, I think about the way, the, the view of life and, and infants where uh, the practice and Roman culture would would be in some sense, uh, okay, if you have a baby, if it's a male, keep it. If it's a female, just take it out to the edge of the field and let it die. So there wasn't a reverence. But Christians said, no, that's wrong. We're creating the image of God. They would go and get these babies and take care of these kids. And they just showed how precious humanity was. And it changed culture. They also stood up against uh, the, the gladiators where you spilled blood and killed just for sport. No, human life is precious. And and they made sacrifices and they lost their lives to fight for these valuable things. That was countercultural. See, to be countercultural, to say no and be and considered radical, it, it's a loud voice and it makes an impact. So, how can we be countercultural in the midst of a culture that absolutely worships money? Because a lot of times what I see, and I'm guilty of it too, is I just fit right into, into culture. I just fit right into this mindset and this vision. Instead of standing against certain things, against the promises that money is all you need, money answers all your problems. That is not true at all. We see people that have more money than they know what to do with, with huge problems on the front of the paper almost every day. In the news lines, they make headlines. That's not the answer to our hearts. It's just a tool. It's a means to glorify God. And too often we just fall right in to step as American Christians. 
So we, we have to fight for this biblical view of money. We have to fight for it in our lives and in, even in our homes and in this church. We don't want to let money become an issue. Ever. It's what we do with God's provisions. There have been people um, in this church that have received inheritances and have come to me and say, so, so this is the biblical vision of view of money. They didn't have to do this. They just, look, I, God blessed me with this inheritance. It, it, is there a need in the church? I want to give some of this to the church. I think that's really admirable because it shows uh, the, that God, the assumption, I think the American assumption, just to get down to, to bare knuckles, is if I get money, even if it's from an unexpected source, it must be God's blessing for me to keep it and use it for myself. It's like this assumption because money is so wonderful and grand that when God gives it to me, it's got to be to be used for my own needs, right? And I think that's a wrong assumption. That's why I'm impressed with other believers that encourage me in their giving and their, I have this. Of course we could use it for ourselves to upgrade whatever. I want to give it for the Lord's purpose. That's a beautiful thing. That's a, that's a powerful witness of where a heart stands and not being in bondage to finances. So I want to close with this personal illustration here. Um, you know how some childhood memories just, for whatever reason, they stick in your head? Like I look at my childhood. There's so many things about my childhood I can't remember. And I go home and one of my siblings will be talking about it. and like, oh, yeah, yeah. There's this memory as I was studying this passage that has been etched in my mind, I'd be surprised if I ever forgot it. It was, um, I was about, I think I was 14 years old, and a lot of my buddies at that time had dirt bikes. Not all of them, but a lot of them. They had dirt bikes, nice dirt bikes. I had to have a dirt bike. You know how it works, teenagers. You, you just have to have it. You may not wake up, breathing the next morning. If you do not, ha like you just cling to certain things that come by. So, uh, you know, I grew up, I was not impoverished, impoverished uh, we probably middle, maybe to upper class. Um, but my parents were frugal. There were nine of us. So, so we had to be careful. On, nothing was lavish, no lavish cars and so forth. It was just kind of the average things. Um, but my dad took great care of us. He worked hard. He didn't gamble his money away. He didn't drink his money away. He didn't even drink. He just worked hard, and he gave his, his earnings to our family. And we, we had a lot of needs with all those kids. I ate a lot of boxes of cereal growing up. It was expensive. So he was very honorable, just very responsible, and very sacrificial in this way. And I've shared before that he was very generous when it came to Christmas time. Man, that's just like a heaven dropping down there. So that's how he loved us, and we knew that. So I'm about 14 years old, and a lot of my friends have dirt bikes, and they're just sharing that experience about how cool it was to ride the dirt bikes this weekend or whatever. And I'm not in on that. I can just dream. So my birthday was coming up, and I thought this is a great time to just make the appeal. Uh, so I asked Dad, yeah, my birthday's coming up. My friends have a dirt bike, and I, I got to have a dirt I really would like a dirt bike. Uh, it, was, it, would, um, 
it would have magic powers. If, if I had a dirt bike, my grades would go up. If I had a dirt bike, I'd, my, I'd be more responsible with my chores. You know how it works. You, if you give me what I need, it'll change my heart, and I'll be a new person kind of thing. So I'm working on Dad, and he's not, he's not taking the bait at all. Um, now, he is sitting at our dining room table, which he often used as a desk. He would come home and work, too, and he'd spread it out. On the, on the desk. But this particular time, as I'm talking to him and I'm working my, my magic and I'm presenting these arguments, uh, just, you know, trying to paint a picture of how it's a win-win situation for everybody, just bargaining and pleading, um, I happened to look down at what he was working on, and he had legal pads. And on these legal pads, very neatly written, Dad kept great records, um, were were lists of, lists of ministries with the amounts given. He was working on his taxes. He was working on his charitable gifts. Now, he had said that you can't have a dirt bike son primarily because it's too dangerous. Plus, we can't afford it right now. So I'm working my magic while he's working on his taxes. Now, I happen to look down at the table, and I'm seeing, you know, Baltimore inner city missions, $150. I'm making this up, but this is basically, uh, you know, this, this hospital charity, $100, $25, $20. All these missions here, St. Jude, St. whatever, all these missions. And I'm looking at tabulating just, and my math wasn't great, but I'm looking at this 50s or 20s, and I'm adding them up. And just, and there was pages of this, and I thought, he's telling me no. And he's given the money, he's given money to people I don't even know. I can't have my motorcycle because he's given the money to people that aren't even in the family. And I took that, I never shared this with him, I took it personal. I'm struggling while I'm talking to him about, I cannot believe you're saying you can, we can't afford it and you're giving other people our money. That was my attitude at that time. That had a strange effect on me. Because by the end of the time, I walked away really disappointed. But what I saw was this man that had priorities and, and value. And that, yeah, giving to this organization or this ministry or this needy child is more important to me than you having a motorcycle. So it was ouchy. But what it did is it, it just elevated my respect for my dad to make that decision. To say no to one of his children at a, at a toy. You can't have this toy because in the world there are greater needs. Now that has stuck in my head all this time. And as disappointed as I was, I grew in my respect. This guy who was just unmovable, who understood his, he was a godly man, he understood how money worked and why he had what he had and how he was responsible before God to honorably manage his funds. Are we honorably managing what God blesses us with as, as his benefactors? You know, what's passing through our fingers and where is it going? 
Do we give in such a way that it evidences how much we love God? Not just average, but how much we we love God. We're infatuated with God. And have we embraced God himself as our main and only and constant source of greatest joy? May God bless the preaching of his word.